I know I know that Jane at the beginning asked how many of you had been to the Scala. I also want to know because I always like to know kind of what kind of an audience we've got. Are any of you filmmakers? Are got any, any filmmakers in the room? No. And sort of, <laughs> sort of, sort of. Okay. And then my other question is, which Scala did you go to? The one, the Fitzrovia one, or the Scala Kings Cross one? Anyone went to Fitzrovia? Yay! Oh, wow. Me too. What was the film you saw? Uh, my first film was Bus Stop and then A Razorhead. So I'm showing my age. Was it double bill? No. <laughs> no. No. So I, I had just come down to London. I was 1980. I was 18 years old and queer. And it was just a kind of really exciting. And I can't remember what I saw. I just, it was just the place I could go and feel just, I mean, I was nothing like the other people who were there. I was way, way more ordinary than that. But it was, it was nice to feel completely ordinary. That is absolutely the excuse. That, 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 is, that is the perfect summation of, this, of as you say, the Scala experience. And then when it moved to King's Cross, wild, completely wild. And I, I kind of moved with it. It was I was ready for that. But can I ask a question? Well, I'm going to ask them okay. a few questions, but you definitely, I just wanted to get a sort of feel of the audience. Now, so you two, first film you saw at the Scala? Jane. August 1981, I went to see an all-nighter. And I know, I can't remember what the first film of the five that I saw, but I do remember seeing Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue as part of it. So it was okay. uh, a horror. And were you 18 years old, Jane? Seven, just 17. And did anyone check your... <laughs> <laughs> um, no. No, because in those days it used to be pretty strict. I remember my mum stuffing socks in a bra so she could get me into a film she wanted to see. So, you know, they, they were pretty tight in those days. And what about you, Ali? Which was, what was your first film there? I was a very young 16 and I saw a film called Birdie by Alan Parker. Not one of his uh, more memorable films. Um, but slightly, yeah, it's, I was going to say it's kind of more mainstream, but actually it is quite strange. It's it's kind of jolly romp about mental illness and obsession uh, with Nicolas Cage and Matthew Modine about a traumatised Vietnam vet who thinks he's a pigeon. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> okay. So I've been kind of across this film for quite a while. Jane approached me many, many years ago when she was doing her book and reminded me that I'd done a tiny bit of programming at the Scala when I was a film critic at City Limits. And I waited and the book came out and it was absolutely amazing. And then Jane came back with I'm making a film. And then I met Ali. And what I want to know is when you first pitched the idea of making a documentary about the Scala, what did you have in mind and how did it change over the course of production because production's been pretty lengthy hasn't it? it's been a good five years is that right uh yeah we've been working on the film five years since uh the book came out in 2018 um the uh when i was finishing off the book of which ali was the editor uh i came across um 50 minutes of archive footage that I'd never seen before and it's in some of it is in the film and you'll know it because it's the very wonky film in King's Cross shot between 91 and 93 like the party on the roof at the end and um, so it's a sort of 50 minute reel and I knew about the Michael Clifford film that we see little extracts of like the lovely sequence with Mrs Reeve and the bit with me on the red telephone giving the programme information with short black hair and and um 
I knew about the professional archive, uh, the Spandau Ballet at Fitzrovia uh, footage that had been um, shot by London Minorities Unit, headed up by Janet Street Porter and Danny Baker. So that's a really great programme, but I didn't know about this big bit of what we called fan footage. So I started to talk um, with uh, various people about what a documentary, a sort of documentary version of the book might look like and feel like. Um, the archive was really key to it. Yeah, absolutely. We, we went through a strange cul-de-sac when at one point it was going to be a sitcom. It was going to be a kind of, uh, <laughs> sort of deranged, kind of uh, surreal, psychedelic kind of sitcom. It, it, you know, m probably much like the young ones kind of meet cinema, really. Um, and that fell through. Um, so we went back to the drawing board and just and did a documentary instead. So what, what do you think was the biggest challenge you had in production, My apart from your tiny budget and COVID. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, we got the funding uh, and then one week later, COVID. <laughs> so um, that was, uh, but it gave us more time to develop the film, um, actually. And we, everybody who worked on the film had a, um, a another job. So um, Alice, business journalist, I work in a shop. Um, the producers, our Channel X producers, were making, you know, their kids' TV program mostly, and Andy Stark was making his Ben Wheatley films and um, uh, various other bits and pieces. So it was okay, you know, kind of like time time went past. But I think the biggest single challenge that we had was the fact that we shot um, at least fifty hours of interview footage with our interviewees. And it was really, really hard getting that down to about sort of, you know, maybe like total 20 minutes, 25 minutes of interviewees. There were so many great stories that we had to leave out. So some of those are going to be on the Blu-ray extras. Um, and But yeah, I think, what do you think, Ali? I think that, that for me was the hardest thing. Yeah, it's heartbreaking when you have to let some of those things go. You've got to kill those babies. But yeah, I mean, we, we went through a paper edit because um, we transcribed everyone. And we're still doing it. It takes years to do that, transcribing people. Um, and we just sort of highlighted things that made us laugh and made us cry and made us whatever. Um, but there are, there are plans, I think, for a kind of um, hopefully an oral history uh, essentially of a kind of um, of, of the 80s and 90s subculture using using the scholar as a kind of carapace or kind of peg to hang to hang this on I, I still hope I, and I think we can pull it off I mean I spent I came and helped out one day and I was very impressed because you're first time directors and please ah okay and what really struck me was the efficiency with which you were moving I think you did four big interviews that day. It was Douglas Hart, Peter Strickland, Stefan and the Kung Fu all-nighter crew. And you were ruthless and fantastically good at kind of letting them say what they wanted to say, but moving it on and sticking to time. And that really impressed me. But what's impressed me even more as someone who's made cinema documentaries is the amount of footage you have cleared and the film clips. And do people know about fair dealing? Do people know about these things? Yes, I, 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 you're interested in fair dealing. Can we get Jane to talk about it? Okay, okay. So um, all of the archive footage, by which I mean, um, you know, the, the, you know, the whether it was amateur or whether it was the television uh, archive, um, the 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 um, people protesting. Um, uh, so all of that came from 
archives and all of that was cleared and licensed properly. Um, with the the movie clips, we knew that we couldn't possibly make this without movie clips. We also knew that we couldn't possibly go the Moon Age Daydream multi-million budget you know, I mean, who's got that money to make a film about the Scarlet? It just wasn't, it was not going to happen. But what we did have was um, the fact that we got to a point through various programme makers, including Saskia, also including people like Mark Cousins, where there is an editorial framework that's been established for fair dealing. And um, you'll have seen at the beginning, at the end of the film, a big bit of wording which says loud and clear that we are quoting copyright um, law um, and the right of quotation exception is really critical to what we're doing because this is not a film as you have seen about movies. Unlike Mark Cousins' films, we haven't got people pontificating about the froth on the coffee and in this film of Bergman or from the coffee whatever yeah whatever it is sorry Mark that was that was unkind yeah we do love him um (laughs) that was mean um so we haven't got people talking about films uh not really um but we wanted to give a, a sort of like a visual representation of the flavour of the Scala programme. So we exercised our our right of quotation exception. Um, Yeah, so that's what it is. It's it's a really, I mean, I did a documentary for the BBC about the history of film censorship back in 99, 100 years of film, 100 years of censorship. I had to get Clockwork Orange on a laser disc from France and have my consultant or whoever it was sit literally in front of it talking us through a scene and that was the first time the BBC did fair dealing on a film and Kubrick rang up Alan Yentorp and said no you can't do this and then Warner Brothers in credit to Alan Yentorp he stuck to his guns and we did show it but then Warner Brothers withdrew all their films from the BBC for a while Um, and so fair dealing is really interesting because it's come along so much since then I was watching your film and thinking wow there are things you're doing which I would never have you know got away with but I think it's I think it's brilliant I mean the 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 music rights alone almost turned me into a nervous gibbering wreck to be I mean music is really really incredible I mean so so hard to clear and and there was just this one piece of music in there which is when Barry Adamson's um, version of Man with a Golden Arm is segued from uh, the original kind of theme for Man with a Golden Arm. That took weeks and weeks and weeks. And we're talking about like 20 seconds of music. It's, yeah, yeah I never want to do that again. Yeah, I used to want to put a caption up and say, I really hope you're enjoying this bit. It's costing this much money. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that struck me about, about the film, which I absolutely love, um, is it's really a documentary about an era and a building and a very disparate community of people rather than about film culture per se. And But your main funders were the BFI who are all about film history and movies on screen. How did that work out for you two? Well, so the film was funded by the BFI Doc Society, which is an organisation set up to do what it says on the tin, uh, fund documentaries. Um, we went to them, I went to them first um, with the idea and uh, Lise Marie Russo gets a big credit up front. Um, she's a really interesting filmmaker herself and uh, she got it immediately. Um, 
the next bit of money came from a Kickstarter crowdfunding campaign. Um, Is there anyone here who who helped crowdfund, by the way? I think there's one. Thank you very much, Askia. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the last bit of money came from uh, BFI Dot Society as well, and then you get a bit of tax money that sort of finishes off the budget. Um, BFI came in as a distributor. Um, we had a sort of rough cut screening, and they loved it to bits. Um, we showed, we did a couple of tweaks of that rough cut, and then we showed it to Channel Four. Um, uh, who uh, loved it and bought it, so it's going to be on the telly at the end of 2024. This is miraculous. They both bought it on the strength of a single screening. I think I think Channel 4, the, the screening was possibly held by Edgar Wright and the audience laughing his head off. It's like, yes, Edgar, laugh it off. Um, I think what the BFI like about it, as um, and the BFI distribute quite a wide range of films, um, fiction films and documentaries um, about all subjects. But I think what they really like about it is that it's about the spirit of cinema going. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing that's really important to the BFI is to champion the art of, uh, the, you know, the act of cinema going in addition to the art of filmmaking. Absolutely. Also, it's generational. The gatekeepers of the BFI all went to the Scala. And now they're of an age where they can let us back in. It's fantastic. <coughs> so timing is everything in this. Of all the factors that closed the Scala, it was... The Clockwork Orange case, the lease expiring, the financial crisis at Palace, the move to people watching more films on DVD and video. What do you think had the biggest impact? Or, or is it perfect storm? So um, it was a perfect storm, but um, the thing that absolutely nobody can deny is that the Scala's 13-year lease, uh, sorry, 12-year lease, which was taken out in 1981 when it moved from Fitzrovia to King's Cross, expired in June 1993. Um, the difference between Fitzrovia and King's Cross was that when the Scala was kicked out of Fitzrovia by the arrival, ironically, of Channel 4 Television, who took over the um, b building, uh, Stephen yeah, they, Willing... They owe us, yeah. <laughs> Stephen Willie negotiated a uh, £10,000 settlement. I couldn't really go into this level of detail in the documentary. If we'd had something like, you know, a three one-hour, three-part Netflix series or something like that we would have gone into much much greater detail about you know um the kind of historical facts about how the cinema was managed and all sorts of things as well um but we couldn't so we opted for the audience story for this particular film um but so that ten thousand pounds enabled stephen jane pilling and co to set up in king's cross and turn it back from a monkey house into a cinema again when the Scala lease ran out in 1993, um, Palace had gone under in 1992. Palace was a wonderful um, film and video distribution company and film production company, which over-diversified into many different um, areas and um, caught up in uh, the recession and the failure of a couple of their much bigger, more expensive films, the company was wound up in 1992. Stephen Woolley and Nick Powell were the directors of Palace Pictures. Stephen Woolley and Nick Powell were the directors of the Scala Cinema. Um, the Scala tried to fund, like my first day at work at the Scala in um, 
1988, a letter landed on my desk from British Rail and it was a notice of compulsory purchase order on the lease because at that time the um, high-speed rail link was going to come right through the middle of King's Cross, right through the middle of our building across the train lines. Um, and it wasn't until several years later that the, the, the route was rerouted around the back of um, St Pancras. So um, we we always knew that this was on the cards. So throughout my time at the Scala, as well as programming films, we were um, working on plans to redevelop the building to make it more financially profitable by multiplexing it. Um, so we worked with some art architects called Burrell Foley, who did, I think, the Metro Cinema and various others. Um, and it was the plans were quite nice, but we couldn't fundraise and because of the climate and then when Steve and Nick officially kind of went back it didn't exactly go bankrupt but they lost everything um and we really couldn't fundraise at that point plus the fact they were really out of energy yeah. at the beginning Stephen Woolley was an absolute firecracker um but by the end he really really couldn't bear it anymore and he didn't want to see the Scala lose any more money so he ba they basically wound the company up um, when the lease ran out in June 93 so I know that's interesting but it, I think you can see it's also a bit too much information for the film yeah I, and I mean it was it was great that day I spent filming with you guys it was the first time I'd been in the Scala since I made the documentary about Palace when I'd interviewed Nick and Steve in 93 depressed as all hell sitting in that building with the rumble except because I was making it for the BBC we had to stop when the rumble happened <laughs> like we had to cover all our cuts I was very when I first saw this film I kept looking at it thinking they've got jump cuts and they're not having to cover them with clips and so I love the kind of anarchy of the style of the film and I think it's really great one of the things I wanted to really ask was what do you think this is my final question I'm going to let you all ask questions what do you think the Scala's legacy was do you think this film will inspire people to run cinemas in a more interesting way because we've been art houses apart from the garden which is unique and wonderful um most art house cinemas now are just basically they're like pret-a-manger to a <laughs> you know spirited independent sandwich maker and they you know, they're all the same and they all show the same movies and um, it just struck me watching this just you know the extraordinary number of films you guys had going there and do you hope that people will watch this and think right I'll start a cinema or yeah it's it's a massive call to action this film it's not it's not some hopefully um, I hope you don't take away from it a kind of dewy-eyed nostalgia trip um, it is a massive call to action to do that we have two sets of people by a significant metric who come up to us after screenings. Um, one group are typically young women under 25 who come up and say they've been massively inspired by what they've seen. Possibly because they've seen a rotor of extremely forceful force of nature young women on the screen as programmers doing this stuff, including Jane, um, who say at the very least they want to set up their own film club, more permanently go into exhibition distribution. I cannot tell you how happy that makes us. We have another group as well. <laughs> and our other group is uh, gentlemen of a certain age who, who come up very pink-eyed. Um, we had a lovely guy in Manchester uh, when we showed the film up there who who, who came up and, and, and he was, he, he his, his lips were trembling and his eyes were just full of tears. 
And he explained to me that the moment at which he'd lost it was, uh, he said, I kept it together, I kept it together. And then when I saw the image of the fundraising T-shirt, the Droog in the Dock T-shirt that we sold at the end, he said, I had that T-shirt. I've worn it for the last 30 years. And I just had to throw it away because it was in shreds. And um, and and he started crying again. And I think it, it kind of represented to him... Um, you know, there's, it's a very melancholic film, as you can see, as well as the sort of, you know, fun and games and yeah. silliness. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I was incredibly nostalgic the first time I saw it. I was just like, that. It, it felt a bit like seeing Colonel Blimp, you know, when he wants to be a young man again and you go back in time. I had that kind of like, oh, I really want to be 17 and sneaking into films that I wasn't allowed to go into. Anyway, questions? That lady back there, thank you. Uh, thanks. Um, John Waters mentioned print and flyers and ephemera and things like that. Is there a archive of that material? Um, yes. When the Scala closed, uh, I went, I'd actually left the Scala in 92, but I went back in 93 to help with the sort of, you know, save the Scala campaign. And then when we couldn't save the Scala, um, Helen DeWitt, who was the last programmer, and myself kept almost everything um, in terms of like box office records, distribution catalogues, and the programs that we had kept uh, throughout the life of the Scala in order to um, sort of refer back to, you know, previous bits of programming. Um, so we had a that's the Scala archive. And the reason why we kept all of that stuff was we thought that we would try and open the Scala again. But the fact was we didn't have any financial backing, as I explained, and, and we weren't as skilled as Stephen Woolley was. And also everyone kind of like went off in different directions at that point. Um, so the programmes were scanned for the book in 2018, a large, like we had a fundraising campaign for the book as well. And we had a, um, you know, very expensive, large flatbed scanners of these big programs. Um, and yeah, uh, and lots of people like kept them as well in their cupboards. And, um, you know, lots of people uh, have said to us that, you know, brought them along and showed them to us. Um, it's not the moment. I've been in discussion with a few universities and with the BFI archive about the Scala archive. Um, so I am still using them at the moment um, because we uh, scan the fronts. Um, and um, But the reason why we didn't put the backs into the book was that we didn't we couldn't clear all of the writing M much of the writing was from time out city limits um and i i i didn't want like jeff andrew <laughs> beating me up about the fact that we hadn't cleared the rights to one of his film reviews um or whatever it was also because the text is about the size of a gideon bible it's like yeah. you'd need to read yeah. an electron microscope to read that stuff wouldn't yeah. you really yeah i was i was looking at the book the other day it's fabulous if you can buy a copy it is just one of the most wonderful objects but I was going oh this is where I realize how old I am I really need not just my reading glasses but a magnifying glass for some of it you know because it's yeah. but I, I think the intention will be ultimately to um, put them into uh, into some kind of archive preservation status yeah yeah gentleman here hello hello thank you uh, I was really struck by 
the the scenes that in the movie about the uh, the film, the use of film and catching fire in the projector and things like that. Uh, and I was just wondering if there's um, a different, you know, if you can say something about the difference for art house cinema today between digital and film. I, re- I remember my experiences. I, I'm not a Londoner, but I grew up in Birmingham and my art cinema was the triangle. And I, I remember they only had one projector. So so to change the, the, the reels, the, a guy had to come out with a tea trolley to, to, to you know. And, and there was a certain culture uh, element of that, which seems to have been lost. Can, can you say anything about that? Um, I'll, I'll just start briefly uh, being the person. So... Like every Thursday, this massive van from the Perivale, from the, the, the warehouse would come with our week's supply of films. And you probably know that a 35 mil um, reel is like this big and, and uh, that thick. And there's five of them. It's 20 minutes on a reel. And the Scala, and the word Scala means staircase. And we had over 100 stairs in the um, in and no lift in the um, King's Cross Scala. And the projectionist would have to carry these all the way up the stairs to the top of the building, make up the prints. Um, so often, you know, as we described in the film, the, the reels might be in the wrong order, the perfor- the, you know, the perforations, um, the sprocket holes might be like ripped and torn, and it would, it was precarious. But also, I think the thing that we forget now, we're maybe a little bit used to seeing, you know, kind of scratchy looking archive film as a sort of aesthetic. Um, that filmmakers use but the thing that we really forget was how terrible the sound was um, on 16mm and 35mm prints particularly in cinemas like Scala that had a sound system that was called improved double mono Um, (laughs) and so we had this kind of like sort of like series of speakers above but you know the difference now is uh immense because you know you had all of this you know kind of breakdown and then you'd have the slow hand clap of the audience who didn't seem to know that the projectionist couldn't hear them because the projection booth is soundproofed um you know the, the the fires on screen the scratches the tram lines the faded prints the magenta um pink prints and all of that kind of like interesting thing which we do romanticize now i um worked in distribution through um, the moment of digitization when the BFI was pouring, well, actually, the Film Council was pouring enormous amounts of money, forcing the industry um, into digital projection really before filmmaking was ready to go that way. And I remember going to sort of a test screening, um, and the grass, there was a kind of a scene of nature, and the grass was emerald just this block of emerald green. No, you couldn't see the leaves of the grass. You couldn't see any differentiation. And then there was another scene that was like Whoopi Goldberg's face. Imagine what the early like digital cinema did to a black woman's face. It was just, there was nothing there. She had no features. It was nothing. It was absolutely appalling. It was awful. And I still maintain that the light um, of uh, through 35 millimeter, particularly um, if anybody ever went to a cinema 
that projected carbon up uh, through carbon art projectors. It was a very warm light. Um, the quality of light is different. You can still see this in cinemas. Um, the National Film Theatre and various other cinemas do um, keep up with 35mm projection. Um, but maybe Ali can describe what it's like to watch a digital copy of our film, for example, in the cinema. Um, you've been crystal clear and, and, and beautiful. I just, just very quickly and tangentially on the subject of carrying those reels up endless flights of marble stairs without a lift involved. Um, our lovely Asha Vick, who you've seen in the film, says that um, her favourite film to carry um, was called Dick, which was a short of just just a procession of penises. And she said that was the smallest reel. <laughs> and we're actually showing Dick in the uh, BFI South Bank Scala season in January. I'm going to introduce a really rare screening of Looking for Mr. Goodbar, um, which you'll have seen referenced in the documentary as the, the, the man expires during the screening. Joanne Seller had to drag him out, but we're showing that in a double bill with the short film Dick. Yeah. Any more questions? Yes, back there. Thank you. Hi. Um, when you were assembling the clips and the interviews, were there any bits that you thought, no, we can't use that, that's just too strong? I mean, the, the, for example, the bits from Café Flesh and Thundercrack were pretty innocuous, really, compared to what's in there. But was there any self-censorship there? Um, there were some, well, it's less that, actually. I mean, I think when, when you start off to make a film about the Scala and it's a certificate 18, you just think anything goes, really. We don't care. Um, it's more to do with the kind of stories that we use and some of which we left out. <clears throat> there's um, there's a story about um, Shane McGowan um, urinating on the audience um, during a screening, of, of, during a Roger Corman uh, season. And uh, obviously Shane was extremely ill uh, while we were making this film. And obviously he's now incredibly sadly passed away. And it felt like punching down in a way. Mm. So we didn't use it. Um, but I think I'll leave Jane to talk about one particular um, film that begins with a letter T. Well, actually, no, before we get to Thundercrack, um, you're right about Café Flesh. And actually, I had a no gynaecology rule um, for the film. I, I didn't want to see big gaping open fannies that you get in Café Flesh. I, I just didn't want our audience to kind of like sit through that. If they want to see Café Flesh... You can find cafe flesh, um, but actually that, that's true. And when we when we have clips of um, Russ Meyer, we're not we're not sort of using clips of like sort of beneath the valley of the ultra vixens, you know. Yeah, so that's a really good observation, yeah. good point. Um, yeah, there was some self censorship. However, um, we did very much want to have an eighteen certificate film because I just thought you can't make a fifteen cert about Scala, can you? And also, w by the time we'd compiled the film and um, we had some really lovely stories like Mark Moore's story about um, going um, aged 14 or 15, spending his dinner money on, on going to the movies um, and about bunking in underage. And, uh, you know, we all, we all, many of us had those kind of stories that we were excited to go to the Scala because we were not 18 and we were excited to have a cigarette in the cinema because we weren't supposed to smoke in the cinema all that sort of stuff um so as we know it's incredibly hard to get an 18 cert in this country like 
Ben Wheatley and Edgar Wright have studied the BBFC rule book to within an inch of its life to work out how to get an 18. Um, and, and we did it by putting in one second of Thundercrack. Um, and it was very judiciously chosen, that particular shot, I felt. There was much in Thundercrack that we could have, um, you know, and it was very tempting. But I, I just really liked that particular shot and that got us our 18. And my only regret about the 18, like, so when we were down in Brighton at the Duke of York showing the film as part of Cine City, um, I was sort of, um, somebody came with um, their daughter who was... Um, uh, I don't know, 14, 15. 14 or 15. And um, the management of the Duke of York already told me that they would age challenge anybody who looked under 18. And I said, seriously? You know, but this is, you know. And they're like, no, we're very serious about this. We're not going to break the rules. We will age challenge anyone who looks under 18. So I turned to our friend's daughter and said, it's like, so tell them you're 18, when, you know. Um uh, but yeah, no, we would like to start a campaign um, to get younger people bunking into 18 films. <laughs> the other campaign we would like to start is for excellence in intermission and auditorium music. Um, we turned up at uh, a cinema which will remain nameless, uh, Pitch House Central, yesterday, um, and uh, to do this intro um, for our film. And I was actually shocked, and I said to Ali, what is that terrible music that was playing as we came in? And he said, It's Howard Shaw's Lord of the Rings. <laughs> the Scarlet, seriously? I mean, you know, like we used to, our projectionist show uh, used to play Joy Division between, you know, all night. And oh my God, it was fantastic. The music here is great. We were sitting out, out in the foyer while the film was on, listening to Talking Heads. And and I really just implore you, uh, projection, I know this is hard, projectionist. It's just one more thing you have to do. But please, God, put great music on before and after the films. I just want to say, actually, that was an extremely, thank you about it. That was a really, really good question, you know, because, I mean, th there are certain things that we didn't show that the Scala show because sensibilities have changed in certain ways. You know, you're absolutely right. You know, certain things have the kind of carapace of, or kind of pattern of kind of irony since, you know, especially mm. during the kind of late, you know, mid to late 90s, which the Scala showed in, you know, I think the difference between the Scala and the kind of mid to late 90s is that the Scala showed things in a very unselfconscious way. There was no kind of um, sort of postmodern ribbons and bows about this. You know, it wasn't kind of counterculture quaffed, you know, it was, it was very organic. Um, and so that question really interests me about sort of things that we, Actually, no, it wasn't just a case of, oh, anything goes. And it especially wasn't the case of anything goes when we were making this film because we did have certain political reservations. You're absolutely right. It's a really good question, actually. Um, when I started work at the Scala, I said to the general manager, John Hopper, is there anything you wouldn't show? He said, yes, absolutely. I would never show Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> I think we're maybe quick... running out of time, but one more question. Very yes, quickly. This gentleman yeah. here. Wait, wait, wait. Microphone coming your way. Well, it's perhaps it's appropriate that this is the last question. I just wanted to thank you all for all the enormous work that you've done from the age of 17 
1988 until 1992, I was going there every. Th- I was going to your cinema every three or four weeks. I have a lot of formative memories there, and it really was an education in cinema. So from my from the bottom of my heart, thank you. But the question I wanted to ask you was actually about the timetable because I've actually still got some un- in the bottom of some of my drawers uh, home, some of the timetables. But I've always wondered. Um, have you put some time or effort into, or thought about putting some time and effort into cataloging what films were on what day at what time? Because I've got a lot of memories of going. And I'm not sure if some of those memories are real or if they're sort of Philip K. Dick type memories. Oh, it's in the book. Yeah, it's, and it's got an index, yeah. It's, oh, fantastic. I, I did it the other day. I kind of was like, hang on a minute. Why didn't I know about this? Oh, I was away then. And I, and I could look up because every month Jane has put the program awesome. up yeah, and, have a look. and the date Fab and what was going on. Com. It is fantastic. You will not be able to sit and read it anywhere than a big table because it's so heavy. <laughs> Sounds great. But it is a fabulous book and it's a great documentary and I'm so pleased the gardens have it and thank yeah. you very much. I think And you've been a great audience. Oh, yeah. Fabulous. Yeah, really. Great Best questions. Yes. Thank you thank so you. much. <laughs>